We're piling into 1 Thessalonians. Just a very, very few verses from the beginning of this letter of Paul, and it's page 1186, 1 Thessalonians 1, 1 to 3. Now, you'll know that usually we take a bit of a bigger chunk and spend a little bit longer together in them, but uh, I was just aware that we're going to spend a little bit longer introducing how we were going to pray. And uh, in roughly 21 and a half minutes, the children will return, whether we're ready for them or not. So uh, let's, uh, let's use our time well, and uh, let's spend just a few minutes together with this. I'm going to read uh, for you uh, 1 Thessalonians 1. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you, mentioning you in our prayers. And we continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labour prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, You'll know that we're uh, spending a few weeks uh, dipping into uh, prayers uh, from the Old and New Testament and uh, asking God to help uh, to use those to shape our praying. And uh, that was the intention today. We're actually going to look at the beginning of 2 Thessalonians, originally. But the closer I got to today, partly as well knowing that I wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about how we pray at the end of a week like this, but also with a particular eye on count me in as we think about growing in our faith, serving as part of a team, giving financially and telling the good news. Um, I wanted to just uh, use this prayer in a slightly different angle. Um, It absolutely is a great model for our praying. In fact, if you go to the beginning of uh, most of uh, the letters in the New Testament, you'll find prayers there. Paul loves to let us in on his prayer life, and it's a fantastic way of learning how we can pray for others, learning the sorts of things that used to fill Paul's heart uh, with gladness, using, learning the sorts of things that he used to pray for. Even when people were in tr- trouble, he didn't always simply pray, for example, that that trouble would be taken away. He'd usually pray for endurance and strength and faithfulness in the midst of trouble, for example. It's a huge amount to learn, and we will come back to them over the weeks to come. But today, I wanted to allow just a few words of Paul as he reports back on what he's been praying on, particularly in what spurred him on to pray, to shape how we think about these couple of weeks of grow, serve, give, and tell. I was thinking that there's one question that is perhaps harder to answer than anything else. And it's simply this. It's a deceptively simple question, but I think it's a bamboozling one if you think about it. How are you doing? Now, I do that all the time. In fact, I'm sure I've done it this morning a few times. How are you doing? In fact, what's even worse as a vicar is when fellow clergy come up to me and go, how are things going? Well, on either level, how the heck do you answer that question? I mean, on what basis are we answering? You know, if you come up to me and say, Richard, how are you doing? What do you want to know? You know, how am I doing physically? Lost a bit of weight, I'm happy about that. Oh, that's good, I haven't been for a run in, I don't know how many months. Uh, sleeping okay? You know, you, we could start reeling off the physical stuff. Or, or do you want to know about my emotional life? How am I feeling? Well, I could, you're all thinking I'm never going to ask him now, aren't you? Um, you know, we could tell one another all sorts of things. How do, do you want to know about my marriage, my family, in my relationships? You know, who, uh, how am I doing at work? You know, how's my staff team doing? You should ask them. I mean, how do we answer it? Or, or in your working life, or your family life, or your community life, and somebody says, how's it going? How do we answer? 
Well, in one sense, we're sort of asking that question of ourselves as a church when we come to count me in, because we're saying, what does it look like to belong to all souls? And the temptation at that point is to think, well, let's have a little look. How are we doing? Well, how are we doing? Um, you think, well, how many people are in church on a Sunday? You know, I confess, I've, I'm going to um, out you here. Um, uh, it's lovely to see uh, friends of mine, Ali and Steve Walton, who are visiting us today um, over there. Um, and uh, Ali is about to become the new vicar of All Saints uh, Church up at Isleworth. So we're delighted to have you here today. And we will pray for you before the end of the service because it's great to have you here. Uh, and Steve, uh, her husband, who is a, a New Testament uh, lecturer and scholar. And it's just lovely to have you with us today. I'm going to make a confession. Put your fingers in your ears. So when they walked in, I thought, I hope there's lots of people in church today. I hope people turn up. It's a bit of professional sort of, you know, I want a fellow vicar up the road to think we're doing all right. It's terrible. It's terrible. That sort of sense of how are we doing? But it, how do we judge? How are we supposed to know how we're doing as Christians in our faith? How are we meant to know how we're doing as a church? Is it the numbers in the pews on a Sunday? Well, surely it can't be that. Because there are plenty of parts of the world where you have these... In fact, Thessalonica would have been one of them, with a tiny little group of Christians. This is just a tiny short time after Paul had visited this Greek city. He'd uh, told them about the good news of Jesus. These little handfuls of Jews and Gentiles had come to faith. This is a letter to them to encourage them, to keep them going. But they weren't thousands in a big tent or hiring a cinema somewhere. They were just a tiny number of people, probably in somebody's front room. So how do you judge? Well, is it through our activity... Is it, can we say, well, because I'm going to, you know, three life groups a year and I'm part of a home group and I read my Bible every day, therefore I'm growing in my faith, tick. And because I'm serving, I'm a part of a children's team and I'm helping serve the coffee, well, that's another tick. And I'm, I'm giving, you know, sacrificially, you know, certain percentage of my income every year, more than I can afford, that's great, doing well. Telling, well, I've told five people this week to go to church. Is that how we do it? You can tell sort of in the way I'm doing it. It, it, it must be more than that. Well, I simply want to suggest, just in the very few minutes that we've got, and it's just going to be a quick skate across the surface, that something in what Paul records as his motivation for prayer for this little group of brand new Christians gives us the three sort of waypoints, marker posts that we need to measure, if we, this language is even appropriate, how we're doing. Uh, if you've done any map reading, you'll know that one point gives you a start. You can sort of work out the bearing to one point. Two points is great. Three is spot-on accurate. I'm having to learn all this, relearn all this moment because Stephen's going on a D of E um, bronze expedition and he's expecting me to teach him how to map read because he thinks I know. It was uh, 30 years ago I last read a map, so we're going to have to learn that. But I do remember this, that the more points you've got and three is great, you can get a fix on where you are in the direction you're heading. And these three points are three that come up time again in Scripture. Three uh, huge words, although tiny, on the page. Faith, love, hope. And notice when you do that Paul isn't saying here that actually what we do is not important. Listen to what he says. Um, uh, It's there in verse 3. Your work produced by faith, your labour prompted by love, your endurance inspired by hope. Work, labour, endurance. Those are active, doing words. But what he's saying is, it's where they come from that anchors you. It's, it's their source that is crucial. Faith, love, hope. Your work produced by faith. Faith is a word to do with God more than it is to do with us, I want to suggest. 
We think of it often as actually something I have, something that I contribute, something I do. I mean, I, I, down the years, especially since I've been a vicar, the number of people I've met who've gone, oh, do you know, I really wish I had your faith. As if they're sort of admiring this quality I have. And, you know, gosh, it's an impressive thing to have faith. Actually, the, Jesus said you need faith as small as the tiniest seed. Actually, the faith of the Christian is about the faithfulness of God. Anybody watch Tim Peake coming back from, uh, from orbit, the, the, the UK, the British astronaut? Um, I, I heard Helen Sharman, who was his sort of predecessor as a British astronaut, being interviewed all over the radio and the TV yesterday. And uh, she got asked this question several times by different interviewers. They said, well, will he be scared? Because clearly the interviewers were thinking, well, I'd be absolutely terrified. And she said, well, not really. I mean, the implication was, you know, once you've put yourself in a rocket to get up there, sort of coming in a rocket back is no big deal at that point. But the point she was really making was, he won't be scared because he trusts the capsule. His tiny contribution to the whole thing is to climb in. I presume he strapped himself in, probably went through a checklist. But actually, in the end, the whole job of getting him down to Earth safely is not down to Tim Peake, it was down to the capsule. His, the trustworthiness of it, the faithfulness of it, is, is in what he's travelling in. The question of faith is that God's faithfulness towards me in Jesus Christ is far greater than my faith in him. His hold on me is always going to be far greater than my hold on him. And it's from that faith, that sense of trust in the trustworthiness of God, that then is to produce work. Work isn't about being good enough for God, about somehow being in a place where God becomes trustworthy or that we can trust. Actually, in the end, it's a response to God's faithfulness. We work because of what God has worked for us. We respond to him. There's about another four hours you could talk about that. That's one. Labour prompted by love. Probably, Paul is thinking here about love for one another, particularly love for God's people, but a love that spills over into a whole world for whom Jesus died. That sense of love being not so much a feeling as an action. We, we sort of know that's the way love works, don't we? I mean, if somebody says they love us, we aren't simply th- imagining that what that means is they feel gooily towards us, that they feel sort of lovey towards us. That sort of love is okay, but what we really want is for love that produces labour, love that gives, love that works. I didn't mean that. Um, love that, that is for somebody else. There's a love that simply says, because I love you, I will act on your behalf. Father's Day today, for some people, has been uh, a recognition of the love of fathers for children and children for fathers. It's also been a, a, a point of pain, of course, as we think of those that we've lost and of sometimes bad experiences of, of fathers. But in the midst of all of that, one truth we certainly know in the midst of Father's Day, Mother's Day, all these great days of the year, is that the love that we value, the love that has changed us and made us who we are, the love that we most aspire to, is love that acts, love that labours. If you want a waypoint, is that is God placing in your heart and in our heart as a church that sort of love, love that acts on other people's behalf? We see it in the life of Paul again and again, the way he gave himself for others out of love. We see it in those that we work alongside, that love that makes a difference in the lives of others. 
And then third, hope. Again, it's a, a little bit like faith and love. It's a word that in itself feels quite weak. We tend to use it along the lines of, I hope it doesn't rain this afternoon, um, or I hope we win the rugby. Um, no Australians, I think, in church today, so I'm allowed to mention that. Um, or, uh, you know, I, I hope for. But actually, that's not the way Paul uses it. It's not the way the Bible in general uses it. In, the, in general, the Bible uses it as a word to do with a confidence in the, the outcome, a confidence in the trajectory of this story. It's quite an interesting thought, just to say, where do you think the story of your life and the story of this world is heading? What's its shape? What's its arc? Where does it land at the end? For some people, we go through life in this sort of terrible fear that actually life is pretty much spiralling downwards and out of control. For others, that's that sort of whistling in the dark, trying not to think about where the story of our life or the story of our country or our world is going. Actually, the Christian is certain. Not that everything is always going to be fine and lovely and all the time, but actually that we know how the story ends. We know where it's heading. We know what hope looks like because hope looks like Jesus Christ in his life, his death, and especially in his resurrection we see the foundation of our hope, the truth of what is coming. That there will come a day when Jesus returns, where he draws a line under history, and where the promise is that heaven and earth are brought together. God is no more distant to us, we are no more distant to him. That he will wipe away a tear from every eye. There will be no more brokenheartedness or loss or loneliness. There will be no more death or dying or sickness. We have a sure and certain hope. Actually, that transforms our praying, doesn't it? After a week like this, to know the trajectory of the story that we're part of. Not a story that might end in disaster. Not a story that spirals out of control. Actually, not a story without an author. A story that is sure and certain. And Paul says that produces endurance. Well, it does, doesn't it? Endurance tends to go when we lose hope. Nothing is more devastating than to lose hope. But also nothing brings more strength to the human heart than to have hope. He was writing to a group of Christians who at different times in their lives could be cruelly persecuted. They were worshipping Jesus where they were in a city uh, where um, uh, the emperor was increasingly put on that sort of pedestal as their, their lord and saviour. Well, they were worshipping a different Lord and Saviour. That was going to cause all sorts of eruptions. That was going to put them at the bottom of all sorts of heaps. And at worst, that was going to put them in all sorts of trouble. They knew what it was to have to endure persecution. And they simply weren't just the sort of people who put up with that sort of thing. You know, they're Stoics around amongst us. I use that in a non-technical sense, that sense of just the people you meet who just seem to be very sort of stiff upper lip and we put up with it. That's not what Paul means. He means that sense of endurance that comes from a sure and certain sense that the story doesn't end like this. This is not all there is to life. Three triangulation points for life, for faith, for church life. We want to work hard. That might mean serving as part of a team that you've never been part of before. But don't do it out of duty. Don't do it simply to earn brownie points. Not Don't do it simply because you're expected to. Actually, we do that sort of thing and we work for the sake of changing the world out of faith, trust in the trustworthiness of God, knowing that we're held on to far firmer, more firmly than we can ever hold on to him. And Paul says that can produce work. The gift of love, love for the people that God has made that produces labour for the sake of others. 
That might be the sort of labor that happens simply because you choose to do something inside that nobody sees, like choosing to forgive rather than nurture a bitterness against a family member. It might be that you serve in the food bank on the Ivor Bridge. It might be that you choose to look after your elderly neighbor. It simply says, I'm going to choose to labor out of love for the world that God has made. It might, if we think of what we were praying for earlier, mean crossing divides in our society, choosing to love alongside those whom others would count unlovely. And finally, that gift of hope that gives us endurance when life isn't like we want it to be, when sometimes following Jesus makes life harder, not more easy. Easier, sorry. That gift of hope that gives us a sense of the trajectory of life. Those are our triangulation points. Is that the life we're living as followers of Jesus? Is that the life we live as a church? Faith, hope, love. All of it, in the end, comes out of one particular word, right at the beginning of our reading. It's the word grace. A tiny little word that was a very common greeting in those days, but actually for Christians, packed a huge punch. Because grace has at its heart this sense of God loving us before we ever love him. Of God being faithful to us before we ever dream of being faithful to him. Of God already setting a future in place for us before we even know that we're travelling towards a future. Of God getting in first. And that the whole of life is about response. Loving God back, even as we find ourselves in Jesus loved. Being faithful to God, even as we discover he's faithful to us in Jesus. Working hard, yeah but only because we've discovered that in Jesus, God has worked his might and arm for us. It's all about response. And if we're not a church of grace, a church that believes that it's all response to what God has already done, then we will spiral down into a sense of, this is about us, what we're achieving. How many people do turn up on a Sunday? And thank you, by the way, for being here. I wasn't downplaying that. Actually, it's not about about what God has already done for us in Christ. We're going to pray, um, and as we do so, I'm going to take the opportunity to pray uh, for Ali and for Steve, as uh, they've just moved in this week into the vicarage and uh, with a service of uh, licensing next week. And uh, we're going to pray for ourselves too, as we come to count ourselves in to the story of God's work here in All Souls. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this gift that you give us of grace. Thank you that in Jesus we see that you have loved us with a love that is so far ahead of our love for you, where you've given yourself to us before we dream of giving ourselves to you, where your hold on us is so much stronger than we can ever hold on to you. Thank you that in Jesus you give us the gift of faith, simply putting our trust in you. And we pray that you will bring good works that make a difference out of that faith. We thank you for the gift of love, that as we find ourselves loved so precious to you, you would help us to love even those we find unlovely and to labour in love for them. And we thank you for the gift of hope, that even when life is hard, you give us the endurance of knowing how the story ends.